0: Welcome back to another episode of the Be A Better Ally podcast. I am Trisha Friedman. If you have listened to the last two episodes, you know that this summer we are talking about the ways that schools and educators can transform what is sometimes deemed to be a difficult conversation and reframe it as a necessary conversation. On today, we have Kathleen Nagley, who is a head of school So if you're wondering what it might look or sound like for a head of school to be leading and modeling this transformation, you're in for a treat. She has lots of strategies and ideas that I think are really going to help schools have more open, honest, authentic conversations that truly spark change.
1: Hi, uh, my my name is Kathleen Negley. Uh, My pronouns are she and her, and I am currently the head of school at the International International School of Helsinki and I also do some private uh, consulting work on uh, especially executive coaching women in leadership type of uh, issues.
0: This series is really about how as educators we can transform what we sometimes typically refer to as difficult or hard conversations and start reframing them as necessary conversations. So I I'm starting that conversation off just by asking educators to sort of switch gears, think back to when you were a student, and tell us what you can recall in terms of any early lessons that you can remember when it comes to how do you do that? How do you engage in a conversation that you might perceive as difficult for whatever reason?
1: I think that's really is interesting. Maybe it shows my age at the moment, but um, when I was in school. It was a time, and this is—I you know, graduated in the mid-1980s. We didn't even do group work when I was in school. Um, it was so, so, so much—you know—in rows, very um, memorization-based, very traditional, which is still, of course, um, a very um, popular style around the world. So it's not what we do at my current school but if I look back like did I have any practice with difficult conversations I would say absolutely not um we didn't really engage with the teachers at all we didn't engage with our peers except through you know um you know peer relationships outside of the classroom but nothing within the classroom and and I was a real intellectual, uh, when I was in, in high school, but none of that ever came out during my, my classes, debates and discussions with others were things you did sitting around, um, sitting around, uh, listening to music and, you know, talking about the world. We were, it was before the, the fall of the Soviet Union. And I remember having debates with friends about politics and, um, nuclear arms races and, and things like this, so the difficult conversations was only maybe through um, through my peers and not during school
0: and I'm wondering now in your role as a leader with all of the different professional development that you have participated in with all of the the training that you've experienced, has there been a shift do you do you feel like that's coming out um, in, in the training that you are receiving, either as, as head of school or just more generally as a leader?
1: I think it's I think it's becoming more available for sure now. And I've had, at conferences, sessions on how to have uh, difficult uh, conversations. I'll give a shout out to Fran Perlman, if people know her out, out there in the educational landscape. This is a course that um, she did at one of the, the conferences. Um, I think for many of us who are in some sort of quasi or real leadership position, um, the training is often through um, experience of, and, you know, in the beginning, it's it's incredibly difficult. And um, I would say now that, you know, 10 years into administration, and in this upcoming year is going to be... 2021's is my 30th year of education. I have a really long list of difficult conversations now. I can't even recall, because it happens almost on a daily basis in the role I have now. Um, But I think there is more training um, that's becoming available. And I also recommend those who've done cognitive coaching and say a method that I have participated in, which I think has been really helpful actually, and learning to be an active listener in a conversation um, and, and learning how not to give advice to others mm. and allowing them to have really to tell their story.
0: Well, and I, you know, I, I apologize for this question, given that you've just told us that you sort of have difficult conversations every single day now in your current role. Uh, but I, I wanna ask you to, to think back Uh, on those nearly 30 years now, if you had to pinpoint one difficult conversation that you would think of as your most profound experience, are you able to sort of pick one out and say, this is one that I definitely will remember 30 years from now?
1: I've had some ones that maybe are, um, I can look back now um, and laugh about because how, maybe how difficult the experience was. The most difficult conversations I, I I have in my role is helping parents who may have a child with with particular needs and the parent is not ready yet to accept their child's needs and these conversations are I, the, I can't tell you how how gingerly I have to approach and how I often with my um, student support um, services um, director that we will often kind of play it out and practice it out, um, talk it out before we get into that conversation because we know that if we handle it well, the person will walk away feeling heard, feeling that we want to take the best care for their child, and they will feel that they've been supported. And, you know, it's so easy how a word, the wrong word can set, you know, a flame of emotions in another person that you might not be able to pull back from. Um, So I don't know if there's any one particular one now that I would look at, but it's a pattern. I'm at the point now where I see patterns of conversations. Patterns of behavior. And I would say that what I understand now is that in my role, especially when people come through my door, it's almost always with some trepidation, some fear Mm. of whatever their situation is. So I approach almost every conversation, and, and I think people would say this about me I approach every conversation that. I, first of all, I want to have enough time for that conversation, for that difficult conversation. So, like, don't put it in you know, into a 15-minute block. Like, this might take an hour right, to do it right. So like, how I have give some breath to that and that I have to be fully present at that, that moment. And This is about mirroring and seating and being really with that person at that moment and doing everything I can to relieve fear and stress um from the onset so that the conversation can go in a direction that is um that feels supportive um to to that individual and um you know people tell me all sorts of things that are difficult they you know i have staff members every year who tell me about you know um they have a cancer diagnosis they have um they have a parent who's dying um so they have these sorts of difficult conversations which are highly emo- emotional and highly charged. I have, I have people who feel wronged for various reasons, um, students, parents, uh, teachers, staff. And like, so how do I you know, reduce that stress so that we can kind of get through it? Then I have people who are asking me to make some changes or, or, or make a move or do something different. And this is, happens actually um, very often or to make an exception to something. Um, so, like, how am I getting the right information and not making a decision too quickly in that conversation as well? Um, so it's like it's this this highly charged atmosphere, so if you're on the other end of that and you're approaching um an administrator or whatever, you gotta think as well like can you bring yourself into that conversation that is going to um, relieve? fears, maybe on both ends, not knowing how, how how good the other person receiving that information is going to be able to process it.
0: Yeah, you know, that's really fascinating because on the last episode, I was talking with Ange Malone, who is a, a vice principal, and we were both talking about our experiences of, of being, you know, one of the only lesbians on staff and coming to a head of school like yourself. With an issue or a concern, the example that she gave was her, you know, the dress code at her school was highly gendered, and she really mm-hmm. felt like that that needed to be confronted. Uh, and something that came out of that conversation, though, was perhaps the school leader not recognizing, as you've done, that it is highly charged, that the person in that position yeah. does have some fear, Uh, you know, does not want to be perceived as a a problem starter. And so I'm wondering, actually, you've given some excellent strategies, but I feel like the step before initiating the strategies is actually recognizing the charge or recognizing the emotion. How have you learned to do that? Or how would you explain to somebody else, like, these are, these are signs, or these are things to look out for? Or here's the way to just sort of have your eyes open for it?
1: Yeah. Uh, Um, I would say, you know, working with my leadership team, um, this is something that um, I'm trying to give perspectives on when someone, when anyone is coming. Like I said, when anyone's coming through that door to ask you for something, um, you have to imagine that that person um, is is entering into a power dynamic relationship, and it's often very hierarchical and um to be in a position of power you must understand that people bring fears to every conversation that you have with them so i've had administrators for example who will um have a conversation with someone, someone brings up a new idea for for example and the the administrator um also has their idea and they've really thought it through and the administrator maybe presents an idea someone else presents another idea in the meeting but then somehow it feels like it's been shot down because it's shot down because the the whole group will, will feel that it's shot down because the person in power has spoken with some kind of even quasi plan and what often happens is the administrator will be like why was everyone so mad at that meeting I just had. And it's like, they didn't see that, they, they still see themselves at that. They can have a, a normal conversation between themselves and a staff member on an initiative. They can have a, a debate with them, but it's not true. Once you've entered into a, a power stage or power level, um, it becomes tainted on your side anytime that you're presenting something too complete or too, with too much information. So I, I would say that, you know, being, um, maybe you have some ideas, but allowing others to do all their speaking first, get that all out on the ground. And when you're facil- facilitating, a conversation, um, it's not this tit for tat kind of dynamic. If you're in power, Um, Whatever you say, whatever move you make will be seen in this heightened way, often with stress and misinterpreted, like, I can't believe they said that to me kind of feeling. And and I, I even told the staff about this once. I said, you know, especially in my position as being the head, I'm like, I'm this very short lady, but when I walk around at the school, it's like I'm Godzilla. (laughs) Anything that comes out of my mouth, you know, people might, you know, it goes, whispers down the lane of how that was interpreted and how I said and how I acted. And you got to understand that when you move into some kind of leadership, that you have this new responsibility now to ease the fear of others that are coming to you for that difficult conversation. That's your responsibility, I think to take care of their needs. Um, is there a good leadership training on that at the moment? There's some, but I don't know if it's the same kind of light that I'm talking about, because I see this as a very compassionate stance that it's my job to remove as much hierarchy as I can in that conversation so that you feel that there is, there's some kind of equality between the two of us and I'm just a normal person. Um, because that's the best kind of conversation I can have. And then they might see that I'm, I'm giving empathy to their, to, their, to their issue. And they also might be able to have empathy for my position and the difficulties we, I might have. And then we might be able to find a solution. So like if I can truly empathize with them and they can truly empathize with maybe the limitations or struggles I might have, then we can move forward. So when you talk about this necessary conversation, and this is, you know, I think it's absolutely true. And it happens in schools all the time. There are necessary conversations that aren't happening. And, and sometimes it's because we're scared to let, let the administration know what we're thinking about. And, and sometimes how the approach comes feels very, feels very haphazard and emotional. And so like the administration, you have like this one voice come in very upset about something. You're like, what the heck just happened? Um, Whereas if we would be able to build a relationship and build those conversations so that those can happen in a safe space, um, that takes structure in a school to allow that to live and breathe. Um, So one of the things we have at our school is, you know, we're forming, uh, Finland requires us to have equity committees for the staff and for students. And we want that to be a place where you can say anything about what you think is happening or not happening uh, in terms of equity in a school. And, you know, all of us are coming back to this new school year in August, you know, with what has happened in the protests in the U.S. with Black Lives Matters, what's happening with, you know, rights being denied um, for LGBTQ populations around the world. Um, there's all sorts of things that, Students and staff will come back and be like, okay, what are we going to do now? And, and how we build that relationship so we can talk those things out um, and, and find ways to move forward. Um, yeah, it takes to me a structure of listening uh, in a school
0: do you have aspirations for what that structure might look like inside of the example of the the equity committee that you mentioned? Uh, Like, I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. for someone who's listening to that and thinking, yes, great. uh, You know, a structure Mm -hmm. that would, that would help. For someone who has maybe never been in that kind of safe space where those necessary conversations happen. Could you speak to a few examples of the types of things that they might see or, or hear?
1: well we have we have to do um, an annual survey on equity issues at the school and it, and it allows for people to say things that have happened whether they 've been sexually harassed or they felt they were um, that they felt um, felt unsafe for their um, you know for who they are or what they believe um, so it comes out in the survey and i you know I recommend that schools. Um, put in um, safe, anonymous surveys um, to see what kind of discrimination is happening in your school. Because it's happening everywhere. Like, if you're you're a fool not to believe that it's not happening. Um, and, And then, you know, when a group comes together, then we're saying, okay, here's what people have said. What are the big issues that we need to really be tackling? And how do we tackle it? And, you know, we've had kind of some false starts with, with some of the equity work we've done, you know, since I became the head of school. And I, I, t- I take ownership for that because, you know, sometimes you'll see things in the survey and you think, okay, that really, it's really awful that some people on this school are feeling this way. What should we do? And, you know, one of the things I am I, I am, really thinking about a lot at the moment is this question is to what should we do? Because there are some things. I'm lucky to be in Finland, of course. There's lots of rights that are built into the structure of of, of the of, of legal stance, but the reality on on the ground might not um, might not show that. And so, but what are what really are the effective methods? We, we've been kind of hitting discrimination with everyone throws it at education say, education, you fix this. Mm. And I'm really disheartened at the moment with, with some of it. I think I, I, I'm the product of the women's rights movement of the 1970s. And you know we, we were told women can be anything they want. And, and this very kind of like, we're gonna make a difference. And um, the reality for, for most of the women my age is that not much changed in the last 20, 30 years. Um, even though things were happening in school, even though educators were, 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 were talking about these issues, you know, and posters on the wall, you know, female scientists kind of, um, material, but somehow we haven't changed the underlying contextual structure of society to really make change. So like, what do I do as a school leader? I ask myself, what do I really do? Um. So when those difficult situations come and I have that difficult conversation with somebody, I think, okay, what am I really going to do about it now? What can we do that's really going to make change and not, not just be lip service?
0: Mm. Yeah, you know, I kind of want to go back to something that you mentioned there earlier, just the the notion of recognizing, of course, Racist, sexist, homophobic things are happening within a school. Um, you know, and I, I love that you kind of pointed out you're a fool if you don't think that's happening. But you know, Kathleen, if I'm honest, I, I feel like that's the rare stance to take as a a leader. Maybe I'm being cynical, but um, you know, I do some consultancy work when it comes to having more LGBTQ plus inclusive schools and more times than not the stance is things are fine here we don't have that as a bullying issue you know nobody that works here is homophobic the the kids know that they would be supported um and it's you know it's interesting that you're saying you know of course you need to assume these things are happening when my experience has been a lot of schools actually say of course it's not an issue <laughs> so <laughs> i'm like i'm kind of yeah. wondering um your perspective where does that where does that come from or what is that informed by well you know I, it,
1: to me it would be it would be sad it may, maybe it's the case but if that was you know is it that they don't see it as a as a real issue or they see it only as individual issues i wonder like you know if you've mm. been in any kind of administrative Kind of work, where especially when you're kind of like in a vice principal role, we might have to be like vice principal of discipline or something like this. It would be pretty clear <laughs> to see that um, there are, you know, racist, sexist, homophobic things happening in every school. There's always some student who says something that is absolutely awful on a given year, right? But are, are, are these administrators saying this is a one-off? Or this is an individual. Yeah,
0: uh-huh.
1: They're not seeing this as their their responsibility for um, helping students grow to understand that to understand why they they, they don't want to have that kind of um, viewpoint and why we would look for something else. But this, to me, is also a fundamental question of why do we have school? And there are st- maybe most administrators are still. In the focus of school is for academic skill building and ultimately leading to a diploma that is somehow authorized and that kids can go off and be university ready. If that's your focus, then there might be, like, none of this, maybe for some of these, you know, administrators, they don't care. Like, it's, they don't see that as part of their agenda of social justice. They don't see um, that one of the main reasons that we educate is is to teach students how to um, be good people like to me this is still like an ultimate goal if, if they graduate and i know that they've become good people who care about each other and if, you know and of course when all those things are like curious and do well and you know and whatever but i know enough of being an education like if I have helped make that happen. If I expose students to question themselves at such a level that they they themselves see injustice and want to fight for justice, then I've done my job. But you know, I also see myself as a head of school as that I am I am the the leader of the students. And it's funny, many many heads of school don't see themselves. They see them so as the leader of a staff, or maybe in this kind of general leader of a community, but I see myself as ultimate leader of the students, and what I do and what I say is going to influence who they become
0: mm. you know what what you just said there reminded me of um, Sonia Terberg is someone that I worked with years and years ago and she does a lot of work with inquiry. Her her blog is outstanding, but she once said to me, you know, something that she really looks for in a leader is once I've been working with them for about a month, I should understand what it is that they're passionate about. Um, I should be able to see that, you know. um, So for somebody who's thinking, okay, great, Kathleen Nagley is really about schools that, you know, developing students who care who are thinking perhaps we before me what does that Mm -hmm. look like at your school
1: when it's when it's in its in its best forms and the times i'm most proud it's um empowering students to really take action on on issues that are important to them um and you know not reining them in, um, on, on some of it. So for example, um, this past year, about a year and a half ago, we, um, we had, we had a climate day at the school and then about four or five months in or after that, I had two girls approach me and said, Hey, we'd like to do this day as a day of, for social justice. Would you let us take over this, um, we have like, it's like a Saturday work day at our school and it's an event for students. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. If you want to take this off my hands, I am totally, you know, I am, you know, ready to help and support you. And like, I was like, make me, you know, make me a, um, a, a kind of an, a rationale as to what you want to do and how you want to do it. And then let me see how I can get the support you need. So they had this this day really for social justice um last September and it was totally student run and I had you know in years past that had been like a fun run that had been done by the PTO and you know a lot of people were like um wanted to take over this event so it would somehow be perfect and I was like I don't I don't care if it's perfect. This is gonna be a totally student-led event. Let them figure out all the issues, let them you know, mm-hmm. have some failures. Let let them see how it goes and, and let them gain support as to what they're doing. And one of the things the kids decided to do was um, they wanted to have um, so in in Finland LGBTQ kids are called the Rainbow Youth, which I just love. That's, that's how it's translated, the Rainbow <laughs> Youth. And the Rainbow Youth um, they, they decided to have part of this social justice day, that they're gonna have this rainbow youth little piece of the day where kids would be painting um, flower pots um, in like beautiful colors. Um, and this would be a rainbow garden um, in support of um, our LGBTQ kids. And uh, you know what, so like for, for me, you know, when that day happened, they did it and they went and they went to the PTO and talked about w- what they wanted to do the PTO, you know, seeing kids up there saying, we, we believe in this. We want to do these things. The PTO gets energized by like, okay, you know, how can we help you on that day? What can we do? Um, and how can we support? And, and so it felt authentic because it came, it came from them and they decided what to do. Um, and they decided how it was going to, you know, plan out. Um, so to me when I'm doing it right, um, the students, know that I believe in that I believe in this uh, level of um inclusion at a at a real level and and you know they 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 respond to that because they saw my enthusiasm they were given all the power and I'm like go for it and you know and and I could be you know full of pride and smiles that day for their efforts. And to me, that's what it looks like in a school. We pull, like, let's stop us organizing something for them. Let them take the reins. Let it happen. Let, let it be not as fancy as it might have been if the PTO or the staff had arranged for it. Let them do it.
0: I, yeah, I think there's such huge value in it actually being authentic service learning versus, you know, sometimes I feel like I've, I've seen service learning done more as teachers doing service learning Students <laughs> assisting.
1: Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, I think, probably what the fun run had been in the past. The PTO had tried to organize it. We didn't even, when I asked, like, well, what, what was the fun run for? They're like, I don't know, some charity. Like, nobody even knew why we were doing it. It was just like something mm. that we um, And one of the kids, the kids, they said, let's make it a zero waste event. I'm like, yeah, let's make this. So we're not gonna be selling, you know, food. We're not gonna have juice boxes all over the place. Um, you're going to bring a water bottle, and you can bring a packed lunch if you want. And you take your stuff home with you. Um, and, you know, the kids are often way more thoughtful about these topics uh, than my imagination um, could could muster. Um, so, yeah, to me, it's, it's like, how are you ready to empower social justice to happen in your community? You have, to, you have to be the leader speaking to it, and you have to allow the kids to do it.
0: Well, and I think, you know, your point about the students being invested and being ready, that has absolutely been my experience. And my wife teaches primary school, and, and she's, she's taught as young as, as uh, grade ones. And she's always also believed that her curriculum needs to be inclusive, needs to have conversations about Race about LGBTQ plus people and do identity work, and both of us have have always had that conversation about, you know, the, the students are in. It's it's not, it's not really an obstacle in terms of engaging those in them in those dialogues. The issue often comes either from colleagues who are uncomfortable with having those conversations, or from the parent community. And I'm assuming you've experienced that as well. And I'm wondering, um, you know, with yes. in in your unique perspective as head of school, what do you do to, to set the tone or to, to deal with that? I mean, backlash sounds harsh, but sometimes it is, it is harsh backlash.
1: Well, you know, one of the things is like being ready, being ready in your policies for the attack from certain parts of the community. So like, one of the things, like, for example, is having a library policy that is clearly stating that you have, like, an inclusive policy, that you do not have censorship, that you su- support um, marginalized communities and things like this. So, like, here's how it plays out. When you have that document um, that is well-conceived, um, it gives you it gives you some kind of supportive place to, to land upon. So I had, this is a, another school years ago. I had, a, I had a parent who was ready to go to the board because I had a book in the library called zombie love. I don't know if you know this book.
0: I am not zombie, familiar with zombie love. No. Zombie
1: love, you should know this book zombie love. I think it's like for first graders, maybe second graders. And Um, the real story about zombie love is that you, um, everyone can be loved and everyone has the right to be loved, um, for whoever you are. Um, so there's, there's definitely messages about inclusiveness in this very simple, really well done story. This parent (laughs) was against, um that inclusive message and was Mm -hmm. against the idea of having zombies (laughs) in the library because this person um had a religious belief where they felt like this was like about the undead and how terrible and my child's have nightmares and if you were to saw the pictures of this book i mean totally age appropriate for first grade like they're not an ounce of something that would be scary um for a child, and um, you know the parent came right at it and like you know cc the board and all these things, and then I was able, luckily, um, and I had not composed that policy. Luckily, the librarian had done that years before, and we were able to pull the policy out and it says that we don't censor our, our library mm. books, that we, um, we have a wide selection based based on these certain types of, of values. Um, parents have the right to say they don't want their child to take out that book, but we are, we will not limit a child's choice from our end. So if you want to say that your child can't take out zombie love, we will respect that, but we're not going to say no to your child about zombie
0: love. (laughs) (laughs) You just have to put your foot down somewhere, I suppose. Yeah.
1: So like, you know, As advice for administrators or for school leaders as they're building curriculum, as they're building their library collection, um, having policies that say we're an inclusive school, and not every school says that, right? Um, um, And depending on the country you're in, um, it might feel dangerous. You know, with I don't know, for example, if you're if you're in Russia, for example, you know all the um, anti-gay propaganda, um, garbage out there that you know, people in society have to face, um, a school might feel that if they were caught having such a book, that they might be prosecuted for somehow breaking the law. Um, so, you know, again, there's context things, but, you know, if your school says, has a non-discrimination um, statement in its contract, or in somewhere in its school bylaws, um, then this can be like a founding piece of like a library policy or a curriculum policy, um, and and so you need to shore yourself up with the defenses, already knowing that you will have on a yearly basis those who will not be comfortable, quote unquote with the curriculum that you have you've put together or the books that are in a, a classroom or in a library. So like it's it's part of the it's part of real good policy work, really great curriculum writing to say this is who we are, this is our mission and vision. And again, mission and vision is everything for our school. And if you ever, you know, these are one of these some people will see this is a boring um, committee to join. But if your school is going through a mission, vision um, revamp get yourself on that that committee team and push push the language forward in 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 that mission and vision that allows for um, the defenses um, against censorship against um, those who would be um, not not for uh, an inclusive educational approach and and you mentioned teachers you know some teachers are not not comfortable with um, some of those materials and I think that's you know a really really good question of how do we how do we improve that in this next decade Um, again if you look at someone my age um, there was zero mention of LGBTQ issues when I was in high school zero Uh, The only thing that was ever known was that we were in the middle of the AIDS crisis at the time period. And, you know, to be gay was to be equated with somebody who had AIDS. Um, And this is like the only connection that was ever maybe discussed in school. Um, So someone who is my age, who is not, um, you know, curious and learning and trying to understand um, how identity is being understood today, or, or how feminism has moved forward, or, or whatever. Like, how do we get, how do we get them ready? Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about, you know, we all had in the last two or three years, this child safety education requirements that weren't in international schools, because, you know, some terrible things had happened in the school, which some of you in the audience are aware of, and then child safety became the, the flavor of the day. In which there was a, a lot of attention and school trainings and courses required and staff requirements for for, um, for for most schools. You know, thinking about how we move forward with Black Lives Matter or other issues, maybe this is something that needs to be a requirement too. how do we How do we build that into the learning that everyone has to go through you know a particular training? Um, And again, you know a lot of these trainings are shown to be ineffective in the end How how do we do it in a way that is effective? How do we do it in a way that people feel empathy at the end of the training and say I want to do better? Um, And I think we have a we have a golden opportunity at the moment um, because people are maybe waking up to to racism uh, in particular um, at this at this moment And, and Maybe we can find a way to do this better
0: yeah, and you know I, I think, in my experience, sometimes those trainings fall short because we make them too comfortable. Um, you know, I kind of think mm-hmm. safe space is a bit of a, a misnomer, and i I think whenever you're looking to do that sort of work and have those conversations to a certain extent. They need to feel difficult. You know, I think if no one in the room is feeling a little uncomfortable, then what are you even talking about? And I, I think that's probably even true, you know, as you mentioned, your your mission and vision committee. If there's just alignment and agreement and nodding of heads, then are you even really pushing the language? And I'm, I'm wondering if, as head of school, is there anything that you do to model? You know, it, it's okay to engage in cognitive Cognitive debate, or just mm-hmm. to sort of point out, it's okay for us to disagree with one another, or it it's actually kind of a, a necessary component of a school that's going to be able to evolve. So you know I'm assuming yeah. your school is going to enter into those difficult conversations next year. Is there anything that you might mm-hmm. do to ensure that they are not, in fact, too comfortable where thinking's not really pushed?
1: I think the modeling of, of the head of school uh, in first showing the vulnerability that y- you have not been perfect in this and that you take ownership uh, of, of racism in, in this particular case is going to be really important. Um, I, had a, I had a conversation um, a few days ago with one of my staff members who, who's a black, um, black man from America. And he was, we were discussing, you know, the issue as to what, what should the school do and how, how do we move forward? And like I said before, the the biggest, the biggest thing I don't want to do is just pay lip service to it. Like, okay, like, Oh, we'll have our training on racism this week. And then never talk about it again. You know, you know, we've all been in schools when this happens, like here's our diversity trainings Mm -hmm. check. Um, but, but it's, it's not, it's not enough. And, and one of the, one of the questions I'm having with myself at the moment is that we have this narrative in education that if I just, if I gave you enough information, then I can change your heart and mind about something. And I don't think, I think we have maybe 200 years 300 years that this doesn't necessarily work it's part of the equation but we know that if you find out for example that you know say for example you find out your sister has breast cancer um and and, and you know you're, you're her brother you might for the first time in your life be really curious about breast cancer you might be one of these people you know starts wearing that pink ribbon you might be the person because now you know, like now you you felt, you felt because you love this person who's in the room with you. And to me, the only way we can change that community is the same way with if you have empathy, if you can truly feel empathy in, in a given staff, because if you put, you know, most, most staff say, it's at least 100 people. In that hundred people is everything you could possibly imagine, right? All the, 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 the beautiful types of selves that we are. I could really hear their stories and I could really hear their struggle. Um, and I know this person and I care about this person. Maybe this issue becomes my issue and maybe that these issues or I don't feel is, that if I'm trying to push this issue, I'm also singular in that approach. Um, so I'm wondering, like, maybe we've been doing it wrong all these years, um, and maybe there's something better and I don't know what it is, but to me, it has to be a more emotional experience. Mm. Um, you know, and and I think, you know, like this, I had a teacher at my school whose, um, whose daughter transitioned to be a, a trans man. And you know, she talked about how how in that experience that she did not want to send her child to our school. And this is before I, I had arrived, um, and she said that you know, in the Finnish schools, um, these issues are talked about more openly, and uh, her child feels more accepted. Um, Uh, in a Finnish school, and I thought, how sad, how sad that in in an international school that, um, you know, supposedly purports to be, you know, loving and caring and inclusive, that one of our own, one of the teachers who's experiencing really hard times with her child, um, you know, couldn't send her child to school because of that issue. And to me, if I think that if more people would have known about um the transition um that was made and, and you know her, her son now is super happy um and like he made it through and he's in college now. Um but if other people she didn't she kept much of that story to herself. And I thought if it would have been safer for her to tell that story, how many people would have um had more empathy for trans students in our school. So like, we're doing it somehow, I think we're doing it wrong. I don't know what it is to do different, but we got to build empathy some other way.
0: Uh, you know, And I think you, you sort of put your thumb on it. I, I think often we operate from the default stance of let's make sure this isn't emotional. Like let's look to actively take the emotion out of it rather than just recognize, of course, Of course it's highly emotional, Um, but you know, and I think often we have these conversations from the standpoint of, you know, we're talking about racism or, you know, we're talking about racists, but clearly not in here. You know, they're out there, we're worried about them out there, but but not in here. We're talking about homophobia, but not in our community. We're preparing our kids to experience homophobia later when, you know, no, it is happening here you know i i'm a huge fan of this new series it's it's converts it's from with friends like these podcasts and they they had an episode this month called when denouncing racism isn't enough and um it's an interview with derek black who was a member of the white nationalist movement who did convert and um mm-hmm. he he shares I, i've been thinking about this ever since he's been sharing that when they were looking to recruit members he said the line that we were always kind of listening for somebody to say was, I'm not racist, but. And, you know, I I really do think schools often frame that as these are issues outside of there. Um, And, and, you know, he said when he converted, he said when he was a, a, a white nationalist, their thinking was all of the other white people who weren't with them were actively anti-racist. You know, they, they needed desperately to bring these people on board. And he said, he actually realized after the fact, the people who present as neutral, that they're not actively doing anything. Like they're actually a huge part of the problem. And he said, you know, in ways now he sees, no, they were an asset to his, to his movement.
1: this is this bystander kind of default mode many of us have on many difficult issues, so um you 're not willing to really really engage with it or really learn about it you 're like you know what 's happening you don 't really care about it because somehow you think this is not me um, and like to me, this is the shift that um schools need to move into this next this next generation of kids is uh, unless we can have kids see that yes that is themselves like there there is this shared humanity that this is just you know it should be important to you just as it's important to this other person at a really deep level. Um, then I think people are you know have their own self-interest. At heart, unfortunately, until they feel like it is is part of themselves, um, then then they don't. Then that's the only point when you start to have a change or a real passion for something. And this is how nationalism, I believe, works in many ways. Nationalism gives this belief that um, this is mine, this country this this nation state or whatever it is, is mine and it is my home and it's equated like the deepest level of someone's consciousness that I'm going to protect my home is like such a maybe deeply held belief or stance we have as individuals. So when, when I say I'm going to fight for my country, people, you know, nationalists and others can convince me, I'm fighting for my home. I'm fighting, for, like, this is me. This is, us, we're fighting for right. It's this unified we. But if you know, if you look at you know issues, for example, with race in the U.S., that if you don't see the the American experience as the we that I'm fighting for, we all, all of us that we, we will tolerate um, how people are being oppressed, and and you know, and you have that same passion. You're fighting for, you know, this this higher ideal that like is somehow deeply seated um, and this is why i think again like if you if you know it's always this case if you know somebody who's gone through something then you have a greater awareness and a greater experience so how do we how do we create these moments where empathy is is built and, and i think about i think about um, the Holocaust when it came to this, um, you know, part of my background was that I have a, I have a degree in, in Central European history and much of it is during World War II and, um, around that time period. And people think that everyone knew about the Holocaust, um, during World War II, but this is like false memories that have happened. Um, the word doesn't come into the English language until the 1970s. And there was a, a TV miniseries. And all the people in the audience are probably too young to know this. It was a TV miniseries that happened called the Holocaust. And it was a time when we all watched the same TV shows because there's so few choices at the time. So like most of America, you know, over a couple nights or a couple of weeks, watched this Holocaust series. And then like they woke up like, oh my God, this terrible thing, you know, this experience had happened and like, and became maybe curious about it. And then, you know, 10, 15 years later, you get to like Schindler's list and there's Holocaust education and it's in textbooks and it seems like so much a part of, yes, of course, everyone, you know, should Hmm. know about this. But when I was in high school, again, this is how old I am. Um, in the 1980s, when I was in high school, um, the, Concentration camps, the Holocaust, this whole—you know—destruction um, of European Jews was was really not mentioned in, in my textbook. And in, the reason I, I knew that was because my my grandmother is a was a Holocaust survivor, and it was something that I was curious about, and I wanted to know more information about, like what what happened, how did how did that how could something like that happen, um, and there was nothing there, um, so until we were able to build empathy on a, a nationwide level does it finally appear in you know school books 10 20 30 years later so as we're building curriculum now you know lgbtq curriculum or ethnic studies or other things that where you have societies uh, and history that has been silenced or overlooked or not understood you know coming to the forefront um, it's it's building that empathy um, around a culture, so that of course it becomes part of, of of the educational experience later on. So you know, this is this is an opportunity now. I think this time,
0: I certainly hope so. And you know, I'm glad you mentioned the the pop culture piece. You know, I, I think it's really only been maybe the last few years where I've been thinking much more critically about just the reality that, you know, film and music and TV and social media is a school of sorts in and of itself. And, you know, that whole statement about tell me what you pay attention to, and I'll tell you who you are. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think maybe in the IB language and literature program, we're having more conversations about media literacy. Uh, I, I still think that, sort of has a long way to go, but I'm curious because, you know, Kathleen, so many things that you've said in this interview do strike me as very rare, very authentic. And I I'm kind of wondering if any of that has been informed by anything that you watch or, or listen to, you know, if if you had a pop culture recommendation for an aspiring leader who does want to sort of say, yeah, actually, I don't want bystanders in my school. I want to do more. Ha- has that been informed by by any of sort of your your viewing favorites?
1: You know, <laughs> I, I would say that um, I do my best to keep up with what's what's happening in teen life, and, and this might seem, seem strange, but. Um, like, I, I know the music they listen to, I, I know the sites that they're on, and, and I, I watch and look at these, I want to have a place where I can have a conversation with them where they feel like I, I know something about their world and something about their, their lives. And if you were to look at, you know, something like, and it seems ridiculous, but something like Teen Vogue, mm. um, Teen Vogue. Way more forward thinking than any other, you know, women's magazine for certain, for certain out there on the market Um, or, um, you know, general kind of general stuff that you might be reading on a daily basis when most of us, you know, have have our five or six or seven, you know, hit places we go on the internet, you know, wake up in the morning and look at the BBC and CNN and blah, 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 blah. Like you have these same places we're going to over and over again are you are you outside of your bubble into another bubble where you might be informed about how how things are changing um how the conversations around identity are changing um, so i, I would, I'd recommend teen vogue <laughs> to to uh, you know to me are you in contact with what's what's on the ground um, and I, I you know when I talk to my to teenagers at the school, you know, occasionally like, I'll throw some reference, you know. It's just funny and ironic that it comes out of my mouth. Um, but then they know that, like, you know, I care about who they are and what they're thinking about. Um, and the kids today are super progressive, way more progressive than, you know, almost anybody in your school. And they think this is, like, so... Like why are we having these conversations? Um, you know like for example, I don't know, maybe we're talking something about you know, should we have neutral bathrooms or something at a school? They're like, yeah, of course. Like, why are we having this conversation? Like that's been, you know, um that form of discrimination should have gone away a long time ago. Like the the the, the kids the teens in your school, you know, they're looking at things, and if you want to find those progressive kids who want to lead change, find out what they're what they're doing, what they're talking about. Um, if I were just listening and to um, what my age range of you know um, colleagues and friends and high school alumni, you know what they pay attention to, they have no clue. They don't have any clue about what these discussions are even about. You know, when I have like a podcast with you and some friends listen to like, like, what are we talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Like they don't even like, it's like a different language. But if you're immersing yourself in spaces where these conversations are happening, you're like, how can they not be talking about this? But you, you know, again, just like some kids will only be in the same sites over and over again. And they don't know anything about what's really happening in the world. There's adults who are doing the same thing. What do they, you know, ask your colleague, what are their top three or four favorite sites that they read or look at, you know, each day? I think what you're saying, you're, it informs who they are.
0: absolutely. You know, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up at my last school. You know, every school sort of has book clubs or, you know, maybe even the, the new cutting edge one is a podcast club. But, um, you know, something that and I was uh, the digital literacy coach and something that I was just hearing again and again was sort of a belittling of, of video games or video game culture. And so
1: um,
0: I just sort of put out an invitation. Any teachers that wanted to join a video game club, it was super easy. We put the games onto iPads. We didn't even have to, to meet because it was towards the end of the year. People were very, very busy. I dropped off the iPad um and, and people kind of submitted their audio recording response and i put that together as a podcast so people could listen and uh, one of the games that we played I, I don't know if you've heard of it it's called uh, that dragon cancer and it's mm. i i mean it is not an easy game to play it was put together by um i, I believe a husband and wife team who were losing their child to cancer and, and they wanted to sort of uh, share that story in a really immersive way. And and it, it is just, it's incredibly powerful. Um, and, and, you know, so just kind of sharing the, the world of video games has really changed, you know, in terms of the, the storytelling medium that it is. You know, if teenager is really into a game, it's probably not like the version of Super Mario Brothers that you grew up with playing, you know. That's,
1: like, right. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think that's a great example that you just, you just talked about because, again, when I'm talking about, like, how do you have this emotional experience to understand something? Like, maybe that's, these are sorts of vehicles we need to be looking at. Mm. You know, what, what game out there is immersive to understand, a disc, you know, discrimination? You know, is someone making that out there at the moment? You know, there because, is. Yeah. You know, the... Let's promote these things. There,
0: there is actually a, a, a game simulation of the Trayvon Martin shooting. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. I will leave it in the in the show notes. But um, and, you know, and going back to what we said earlier, it's it is not an easy experience. It is highly emotional. It's very upsetting. Um, and I'm just thinking so much more now about. Uh, that's got to be an important component of these conversations. Is that uh, we're not actively trying to make it easy. So thank you so much, Kathleen, for for all of your time. Um, I'm wondering if you could just leave us with one more uh, one more response. I'm wondering as you prepare for next year, is there a resource that you are anxious to dig into? Um, you know, a, a book, a site, a podcast, anything that you think is going to help prepare for a lot of the necessary conversations that you hope to have in the next academic year.
1: I was just looking back at a work um, called um, All About Love by Bell Hooks. And it's kind of about love, not romantic love or sentimental love, but love as um, public love, uh, love being justice um, and and how, uh, we we have not learned how to love publicly. We have not learned how to teach people how to love um, at this most profound level. And looking into next year, um, to me, I think this is something to um, to review or to understand because this is at the heart of everything that we we're just talking about. If I can approach another. Um, who comes in with that difficult conversation, and I, or if I too am, you know, having a difficult conversation with another, I'm the one who's presenting the difficulty. Can I do this through this profound sense of presence of, and love, um, and, um, and and think about being vulnerable, um, and I, I think absolutely emotional. Absolutely. And we worry about, you know, having tears or whatever, but I, you know, I, I'm a storyteller and people know when I tell a story at school, I often leave the audience in tears. And I myself am close to tears. Um, And those are my most powerful stories. When I, when I talk about vulnerability, shame, um, of the things I've experienced, the things I want to change. The things that I regret, the things that I want to be better at, and when I can show that d- deep-seated emotion, that's when I connect with another. That's when we start to move another person. Um, so I'd say, don't don't be afraid, and don't be afraid to dig into that um, emotion and help make the person you're having that difficult conversation with the hero of that story. Help them become the the Um, the the person who helps lead that justice, show them how they can be the hero of moving a school forward.
0: Thank you so much, Kathleen. I I hope that anybody listening to this gets what I feel like I just received, and that's, you know, don't be afraid of having the difficult conversation. Be afraid of what happens when we don't.
1: We can see what's happening all around the world at the moment when we haven't had those conversations. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And thank you so thank much you, Trisha, for, for having me on the show. Absolutely.
0: it's completely, completely my, my honor. I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you.